Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Kids, fifth grade and under, this is your invitation. If you got a sticker as you came in the door to make your way downstairs, if you are new with us this morning, then you are more than welcome to accompany your child down and make sure that they uh, get down there safely, but know that they're going to be sanitized and helped down there. And uh, it's going to be a great morning for them. The rest of us are going to open up our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to start this morning in chapter 20. We're going to begin looking in uh, verse 16. And as we open up this passage, what we're going to be looking at is a difficult command that God gave to the Israelites on their journey. Difficult not only for them to follow, but also difficult for us as we attempt to understand the God of our Bibles. As we've been doing so now for a couple months, uh, let's take a moment and pray for our nation and also that God would help us to understand this difficult text and more importantly to give us greater insight into who he is through it. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the authority of your word. Lord, we, we stand on it. We, we sit under it. We, we glean from it. That everything that we read inside of this book tells us about you. And so we praise you for revealing yourself through it. And our deepest desire is for our world to know you through the pages of this book. Because we understand that the only thing that will bring redemption to our world is belief in Jesus Christ as he's been revealed in our scriptures. And so, Lord, as we open up this word this morning, help us to, to share with others about who Jesus is, that there would be an awakening in our country and in our world, and we would see multitudes return to you. We know this begins right here with us in our own lives and in this ministry. And so help us with this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout the series, we've been walking with God's people, so to speak, as they've journeyed through the wilderness on their way to the land that God had promised them. Last week, Dave got us through into this land through Joshua as God's people marched around the walls of Jericho and saw those walls come crumbling down. This week, we're going to jump back a little bit to a command that God had given the people before they went into this land. The command is contained within the laws, the boundaries, the rules, the limitations that God had set for his people. And all of these limitations and boundaries were meant to protect his people. And this command is the same. It was God's directive to them and how they were to deal with the nations that they would be dispossessing as they moved into the promised land. And so read along with me, beginning in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. The passages like this often create a problem for people, and perhaps maybe you're one who has struggled with these kind of passages or are currently struggling with something like this. Because the difficulty comes when we hear God is love preached, and then we see a verse or a number of verses in which God commands the complete annihilation of entire nations, the complete destruction of them. See, the command contained within these passages is not ambiguous. God is really commanding exactly what you are reading. There's no way around that in the command. 
The Israelites were going to be moving into this land that God had promised to them, beginning there with Abraham. And he's told them that as they move into that land, that they were to leave no survivors, leave nothing breathing, completely destroy them. And of course, the difficulty comes in reconciling a God of love with a God who would issue such a harsh, direct order to his people. This difficulty is not new over the history of the church. There have been those who have tried and have been unable to reconcile these two ideas and so have offered other suggestions as to how they might fit together. At one point, there was the belief that the Bible told of two different gods, a God of the Old Testament who was an angry God inclined toward wrath and a God of the New Testament who loves all people and is inclined towards mercy, two different gods. And the problem with using this argument to reconcile passages like this is that God himself has not afforded us this kind of understanding about who he is. In fact, in the very same book here in Deuteronomy, if you go back to chapter 6, we see this passage, Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not two, not three, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see passages like this where God clearly says about himself, there is only one. There is only one God. There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is only one true God and he is the God of both parts of our Bible. And so others say perhaps there is only one God, but something about him is different in the New Testament. Something about him must have changed in that 400-year span between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But God also doesn't leave us that, that understanding, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. And in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. And we know that Jesus Christ is fully God. And so if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then God himself must be the same yesterday, today, and forever. These verses about God's nature point us to this important truth, that the God that we worship and pray to, the very God that we just prayed to at the top of this message, is the same unchanging God who commanded that these nations be destroyed. He's not a different God. His nature has not changed. We are praying to the very God who issued this command to his people. And I wanted us to start with this because while these other ideas may be simple ways of reconciling this passage, they are false. And they lead us into incorrect assumptions about the nature of God. And we don't want to have incorrect assumptions about the nature of God. And so let us seek to understand this passage within its context and then seek to discern what it means for you and me today. I want us to first understand this passage by laying out what I believe are some faulty assumptions that we naturally bring to the text these assumptions will help us see where we are in error so that we can correct them with truth and gain a better understanding of what God is accomplishing here, what he is seeking to do. And in so doing, we will have a better grasp of what this means for ourselves today. 
And so we're going to look at three of these faulty assumptions. First, we assume that these nations were innocent, that they were going about their day-to-day lives, having done nothing wrong, just fitting in with the culture around them. But the problem with this assumption is that these people were anything but innocent. In fact, their sin was quite great, and God knew from the very beginning that they would be a sinful people. God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 exactly how this was going to play out even before Isaac, his child, was born. God says in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. He's talking about being slaves in Egypt. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possession. So God is telling Abraham, you're going to spend 400 years in a nation in captivity, that's Egypt, and then I'm going to bring you out of that nation, that's the Exodus. And then he says this in verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, back to the promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full potential. Notice that God specifically references the Amorites who were specifically mentioned there in Deuteronomy 20.17 as one of those nations that the Israelites would be dispossessing and were commanded to completely destroy. What did God say about them? That their sin had not yet reached its full potential. That even at the time of Abraham's calling, they were already a sinful nation and God said that there was more to come. That throughout that 400 years of captivity in Egypt and throughout that additional 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, that the sin of these people would be escalating, would be increasing more and more until the time that God would punish them. A time that was determined by God himself with means that were determined by God himself, namely the armies of Israel. They were not innocent. And God's holy nature will not allow sin to go unpunished. It's one of the things that we learn about God through passages like this is that God is holy and because God is holy, sin has to be accounted for. It has to be dealt with. Second assumption, we assume that these nations had any right to this land. The assumption is driven by our modern day understanding of how property ownership works. Like I currently occupy that small parcel of land in Jeffersonville, and I currently sleep in the bed inside of that home, and because of that, I own that land. I, I don't really own it, the bank owns it, but in all, for all intents and purposes, that land is, is mine because I occupy that. That's the assumption, the modern day assumption that we come to, and so we assume that because these nations had, were occupying these lands, And because they had done so for hundreds of years, that it was theirs and it would be unfair of a nation to come in and to take it by force. That's the assumption that we're making. But the truth is that this land that was occupied by these nations had been created by God, purposed by God, and promised by God to his chosen people. Jeremiah 27, when God was taking the land back away from his people because of their own disobedience and rebellion and giving it to the king of Babylon, God says this about this very land. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth, I made the land, 
and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone that I please. So we assume that because these nations occupy this territory that they had the right of ownership. But in reality, it was rightfully God's to give and it was rightfully God's to take away as he saw fit, even if it meant taking it away from his own people because of what they had done. In fact, it was an abundant act of grace that God had allowed these people to occupy these nations, these lands, this promised land, as long as he did in their sinfulness. And we know that they abused God's grace to the fullest extent by rejecting him, by worshiping their own gods, by sacrificing their own children. The land was not theirs. It was only God's grace that allowed them to be there in the first place and to live there as long as they did. The third assumption, we assume that God's wrath and God's love are opposing ideas. That God is either a God of wrath and justice or he is a God of love and mercy. He cannot be both. But if you come to the Bible with this assumption, as so many people do, then there will be many more passages than this that you will struggle to understand. In fact, this faulty assumption has been the reason cited for many for their unbelief, for the reason they can't believe in God. Because they say, how can a God who is supposedly loving, who is supposedly good, do this thing? How can this God order the complete annihilation of a nation or multiple nations? And the truth is that wrath and love are not opposed to one another. They are deeply, deeply connected. Consider with me for a moment the love that you have for your son or daughter or husband or wife or somebody else that you have a strong relationship with. I can tell you that I I love my wife and son more than anything else in the world. And it's that very love for them that at times can incite within me greater anger or wrath than I would experience in any other circumstance. Now, I'm a very passive person. I don't like to argue, I don't like to fight, I avoid confrontation. But if my son or wife were to be threatened by any external force, then wrath against that force would well up inside of me and I would use every ounce of strength I had to oppose it. And so if I consider that, then my wrath is a product of, is created by my love for them. The two are connected. And if you want to see this principle in operation in the context of our key passage, then you only need to look as far as verse 18 there in Deuteronomy 20. God has instructed them, you're to go into these lands, you're to annihilate everyone, don't leave anything alive. Verse 18, the why. Otherwise, They will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. God's deepest desire for this people was that they would follow his commands and stay faithful to him so that they could remain in relationship with him. They were his chosen people, the ones who would represent him to the world, 
that when the world looked at the Israelites, what they were supposed to see was this one true, unchanging God. God had chosen them for, his, for this purpose, and he loved them deeply. And God knew that because of the sins of these other nations, and the fact that they worshiped these fake gods, and the fact that they had already rejected him, that these other peoples were a direct threat to the relationship with his own people. And the only solution was to wipe them out. Because even if just a few remain, they would lead his people away. And we don't have to speculate as to whether God was right about this. It's the content of the entire Old Testament. Over and over again, we, we see this played out. If you read much farther ahead in the Hebrew history, past Joshua and, and all the judges and, and past King Saul and King David, and you get to Solomon's reign, hundreds of years after the command was issued, you find this verse in 1 Kings 9.20. There were still people left from the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Hundreds of years later, every nation contained within the command in Deuteronomy 20 is found in 1 Kings chapter 9. Now you tell me, if God's people had been completely obedient to the command, then why are there people still remaining from these nations? Because they weren't obedient. They weren't completely obedient to the command. They didn't destroy these nations. In fact, they married them. And what happened? They were pulled away time and time again. Solomon himself, the wisest man who ever lived, married women from every one of these nations and all the others, and he worshipped every one of their fake gods. And it was for this reason that God allowed the nation of Israel to be split into two kingdoms, to be taken out of his hand. The command was given as a protection for God's people because he loved them and he knew the threat that came from these other peoples a threat that played out over and over again. God's wrath against these sinful nations was a product of his love for his own people. The two were connected. And so with these assumptions put in proper perspective, we can see that God was more than justified in issuing the order. But what does the command like this mean for you and me today as we seek to follow the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament in a New Testament, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection world. Well, I submit that when it comes to our own lives, we make the same assumptions that we made when we approached this seemingly difficult command. See, first, we assume that we are innocent, that we're good people who are just going about our lives doing the best we can. But God said from the very beginning that every inclination of the thoughts of man was only evil all the time. You don't get more exhaustive than a statement like that. Every inclination, only evil, all the time. Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. None of us are innocent. And God's holiness demands that sin be accounted for. It can't go unpunished. Secondly, we assume that we have right to anything. We live in a world that believes it has a right to everything. That everything 
can belong to me and, and should belong, the sense of entitlement that is around us and inside of us is staggering. I deserve happiness. I deserve an, an easy life. I deserve to have things because my neighbor has things. I deserve to go to heaven. And God has made us no such promises. In fact, the only thing that we deserve, because we're not innocent, is death, because that is what rejection of God has earned us. In the same way that God's grace allowed these sinful nations to occupy the land that God had prepared for his people, it is only by God's grace that we live. In Acts 17, Paul says, God gives everyone life and breath and everything else, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's only in God that we are allowed to occupy this very space that we occupy. And that every breath that I get to take is an abundant act of God's amazing grace. We don't have right or claim to anything. Third, we assume that God's wrath and God's love are opposed, and I've already shown that they're not. In fact, more than ever, we see how these two aspects of God play out in our own lives. Remember that it's love that causes wrath against anything that threatens the beloved. Dane Ortland writes, his love is great because it surges forward all the more when the beloved is threatened, even if threatened as a result of its own folly. God's love surges forward when the one he loves is threatened, even if that threat comes from within the one he loves. And so with each of these assumptions corrected, God gives us this command through his word. It's a command for believers, for Christians. Paul writes in Romans, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Do you hear what God is saying to you through his word, Christian, in this passage? Don't leave any survivors. Put to death everything that threatens your relationship with the one who has rescued you from the wages of your disobedience and has saved you by his amazing, abundant grace alone. Be about the business of seeing to the destruction of every single habit and hang-up that is contrary to the commands of God and that gets in the way of your relationship with him. I'm talking about sin. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You cannot leave one survivor when it comes to the things that oppose God in your life. Why? Because even one survivor will become a trap. It'll become a snare to you, Galatians 5.9. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. In a context, Paul's talking about false teaching in the church, but the principle applies to sin 
Allowing provision for even one habit that goes against God's will will keep you from enjoying full fellowship with him. And God desires that you have full fellowship with him. Jesus came to give life and to give it to the full, but all of these things will pull us away from that and get in the way of that. So we ask the question, how do we kill sin? By not even making provision for the temptation that leads us into those particular sins that have been a snare for us in the past. Paul says in Ephesians to not give the devil even a foothold, not the slightest bit of ground. Where many of us struggle is that we declare that we hate sin because the Bible tells us that we should hate sin. So we, we declare that, but we continue to toy with temptation. We say that we hate sin, but we continue to seemingly love those things that lead us right into it. We often lean on the verse that says that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, that he'll provide a way out. And that promise is absolutely true. God is faithful in that. That is a true promise contained within his word. But this promise is not for you if you put yourself into a situation in which you know you will be tempted. There's a sign outside Jimmy John's in Jeffersonville that says, free smells. And if I had an unhealthy relationship with bread and addiction to bread, then it would be unwise for me to go there for the smells and then expect God to rescue me from the temptation of buying a sandwich. You hear what I'm saying? It's not sinful to eat a sandwich. I want you to hear the greater context in that. Don't give any provision for temptation and sin. Don't leave any of it alive. Don't leave any survivors in terms of destructive relationships that are dishonoring to God. That if you have people in your life who get in the way of living the way that God has commanded you to live, then you are to have nothing to do with those people. Jesus himself said that he did not come to bring peace, but the sword to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. It's not a command that we should be against these people because if that were the command, then it would be in violation of the fifth commandment. So it's not a command that we should be against these specific people or or any specific people for that matter. Only a statement that if any relationship threatens our relationship with him, then we should not be in that relationship. Put it to death. When it comes down to choosing between Jesus or another person or a group of people, and if you've not yet been called to make that decision, then eventually you will be called to make that decision if you are following Christ. That when you're called to make that decision, that you choose Jesus. Even if it means losing a friendship, a blood relative relationship, or a long-term romantic relationship. We, We get rid of it because it stands in the way of our relationship with God. Finally, don't leave any survivors in terms of distractions. Set your hearts on things above, not on things below. Don't get distracted by what's going on around you, but look to see what God is doing in and through the circumstances around you. And if there is something that is hindering that perspective, then you're to get rid of it. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I made the decision to cancel my, my Facebook account and get off social media completely. And I'm not 
saying that social media is a sin. I know missionaries who use social media for the express purpose of seeing the gospel spread around the world. We live in an age where the gospel can spread farther than it ever has because of the technology that God has blessed us with to see that happen. But I cut it out of my life because I couldn't spend 15 minutes looking through the feeds of other people without becoming so distracted by the ridiculousness of it that I couldn't see God clearly. That it it impacted my ability to love people. And it impacted my ability to see what God was doing in and around me because all I could see was the, the garbage that was in front of me. And so I had to get rid of it. And I gotta tell you, it wasn't the non-Christians that were a distraction to me. I expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. What I don't expect is people who profess to be Christians act like non-Christians. And themselves are so distracted by the foolishness of what's happening in the world that they've become a stumbling block for me and, and worse yet for those people who do not yet know the Lord. And so we have to be so careful that we let go, that we, we destroy all of those distractions that are keeping us from being the chosen people that God has called us to be. Put away the distractions and be about God's business. God may be right now convicting you of some of these things that I've said. Maybe you have particular sin habits and hangups that are in your way or relationships that you know are not honoring to God or, or distractions around you. And, and I've been in ministry long enough to know that Conviction can do one of two things. First, it can cause you to feel angry and indignant, most likely towards me because I'm the one saying it to you. Or it can do what it's supposed to do and it can lead you toward repentance. It can lead you to a turning back to God and his desire for your life. That God's love expressed through disciplining us in our disobedience is meant always to draw us back to him. It's that connection between wrath and love and how deeply they are related. That God's word says that he disciplines those he loves, not to cast them out, but to bring them back. His deepest desire for the Israelites was that they would follow him and obey him so that they could be in relationship with him. And that is his desire for you and me today. And so, yeah, the command is harsh. It's absolute. It's difficult to follow. Don't leave any survivors. Don't leave alive anything that breathes. But the harshness of the command points us to the great reality of God's love for us and his desire to protect us from those things that are a direct threat to our relationship with him. That's the point for us. And the good news is that God doesn't leave us on our own to fight this battle, just as he didn't leave the Israelites on their own. If your son or daughter became sick with a debilitating disease that threatened to take away his or her life, you wouldn't hate your child and leave it alone to fight the thing that was killing it, but you would loathe the disease and you would fight it with every ounce of power and resources that you had. You would go to battle in every possible way in order to save your child. Your wrath against the disease would be limited only by your unbounding love for your son or daughter. But while your love may be boundless, your capabilities and resources are not. They're finite. 
Now imagine how God must feel about those things that sicken his children and threaten to destroy their very souls. His wrath against the disease is as boundless as his love for the diseased. But unlike you and me who are limited in our capabilities and resources, God has the infinite capability to see his work through to completion, to see sin and death completely annihilated, destroyed, nothing left alive. Ortland also writes, the combination of love for us plus hatred for sin equals the most omnipotent certainty possible that he will see us through to final liberation from sin and unfiltered basking in his own joyous heart for us one day. The most omnipotent certainty possible that sin and death will be and have been defeated. And so with God's help, put it to death. Put it away. Let nothing live that stands in the way of your relationship with him. That command is for you, Christian. But if you are not a Christian, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've not accepted this love that he has freely given to you, that command is not for you. Because you cannot kill one sin in your life if you yourself are all sin. What God says you need is a new heart. God wants to remove that heart of stone that has been in rebellion of him since the beginning of your life and replace it with a real heart of flesh and then he can begin to work. But you've got to answer the call. You have to say yes to allowing God to make you into a new creation. So our invitation for you, if you need to make that decision, if you want to give your life to Jesus, is to come. Let us walk you through that and help you with that so that God can begin his work in you that he guarantees will be seen to completion. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, just as I did at the beginning, I thank you for your word for these difficult truths that are contained within it, difficult only to us. Because I know that you, you understand all of these things because you wrote them down and you've been working in them from the beginning of time. But for us, they're difficult because we come to you with a false understanding of who you are. And so my prayer that through this passage and through this message that you gave me this weekend, that even just a little more, we would understand you better, that we would understand you in truth. For those who already know you and have given their lives to you, help, help us put away those things that get in the way of, of us living life and living it to the full the way that you've called us to. And for those in this room who don't know you, who have spent their life rejecting you, only you can give them a new heart. And so my prayer is that they would respond, that you would pull them by your Holy Spirit, help them to accept this love that's been offered through Jesus Christ, that you can begin working in them and making them into a new creation. We love you, Father. We give you the glory for all of these things, for your holiness, for your grace, 
and for your love that sometimes displays itself in wrath. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need to make a decision this morning, this is your invitation to come.